good afternoon and welcome to another edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. As usual, I'm your host, William Hill, and today is July 18th, 2014. This is broadcast number 68. And this is our monthly edition of Faith and Practice. This is the um, broadcast segment where Dr. Piper, who is the president of Greenville Seminary, takes questions from you, the listener, and then answers them on air for you and for everybody else who happens to be listening in. And in addition to that, today we are experimenting, as it were, with um, a live um, uh, feature of this podcast so that um, those who are listening right now, if you are and could send me feedback at some point at confessingourhope at gpts.edu as to how it sounded or um, any other good pieces of information that would be helpful for something that we might do in the future. But um, anyway, so thank you for listening to this particular edition, and we're going to just kind of jump right in, and we have a number of good questions uh, to get um, to this uh, this afternoon. So as usual, Dr. Piper, thank you for taking the time to come and sit down with us and deal with these uh, really good questions that we have on tap for today. So let's, I'm sorry. Thanks, I Bill. Yep. And they might also send us Twitter while we're talking. Mine is... Uh, at J. Piper Jr., and yours is? At William Hill Jr. All right. I can tell that you did mine. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not sure if I did or didn't, but uh, be that as it may, um, it, it, it's just Let works. us hear from you. It works out. Yes, please. Hello uh, to Virginia down there in Brazil. She's the one person I know is listening, and maybe Brenda here in the office. Yes, and others. So, anyway. <laughs> So anyway, as we said, this is kind of an experiment, so uh, laugh with us as we go, but um, we'll be on our best behavior, obviously, since this is live, uh, and but not in color, but anyway. Well, let's just jump in. We have um, uh, a number of good questions. Uh, some of them I actually pulled off the GPTS Facebook page, um, though I'm not crazy about that process, but be, be that as it may, um, I did pull this one off, so we'll just start with this First question, it comes from Jim um, from Norfolk, Virginia, and he writes in about the subject of short-term missions. And he says that some uh, some short-term missions have come under some scrutiny recently. Some feel they do more harm than good. What is your perspective? Jim, that's a very important question. And by looking at your last name, I think I actually chaperoned your daughter when she went down on a short-term mission. Uh, it really depends on <clears throat> the mission field and the needs of the missionary and the motivation then on the church. I think a lot of short-term missions, and I've gotten this from talking to missionaries and being uh, doing some things overseas myself, are not that useful. The churches do it, get kids excited about missions, and it's useful in that way. But in terms of the missionary, it often creates more work for the missionary and if it's in a uh, non-English context, there's just a lot of things that can't be done. Uh, whereas in an English context, uh, I think that kids have gone and helped with uh, out Bible school outreach and Bible um, classes and things like that. I think we've done that over in uh, Wales a couple of years. It was it was very successful. And of course, the building construction projects are very uh, useful if the church sends people that really can get in there and either do the manual labor or supervise 
construction project. So it really depends on the mission field and the project. But churches should be a bit more sensitive, I think, to missionaries uh, and their needs and what kind of burden it places on them to handle a, a team in that manner. So if, it's, if you're going sending kids to a, a country where English is not the primary language, there's not a lot that they can do, and oftentimes it's, in my opinion, not the best use then of, uh, of God's money. So I think you do a case-by-case case with the session and the missionary being uh, in communication, missionary saying, yes, if you want to do something, here is what I need. Now, for example, if we had people that could go and teach English as a second language, there's a real need for that in our uh, non-English language mission fields. We could use somebody like that in our work in Italy. But it needs to be somebody that's qualified to teach English as a second language. So there are things that can be done. Just coordinate and try to uh, send people who have the skills for what the missionary needs. Very good, and a very good question as, a, as, a, uh, as well. Uh, my daughters both participated in short-term mission work um, when they were teenagers. I think they profited from it, um, and I think it helped. I think it was in the vein that you just described, too, was there to help the on-the-ground missionary um, and, and church. Uh, question number two, um, before we get into this question, I just want to ask Dr. Pipe if he wants to deal with this at all. We just did a, pot, a faith and practice uh, segment a couple uh, segments ago that dealt with this two-kingdom question. Do you want to retake that up, or do you want to skip it and come back to it again maybe later? <clears throat> so we did, we did two-kingdom, not just republication. Yeah, we've done two-kingdom okay. in the past. Well, uh, <laughs> just check the archives, Randall, and listen to that answer, and then if there's things that I didn't deal with in that that you would like to answer, then please, what would like answered, please resubmit the question. All right, very good. Now, Davi writes in, I think I said that right, from Brazil, and he has a question uh, regarding the letters of Paul. He says, reading the letters of Paul, I can see clearly the pattern of leadership to guide and her, uh, guide a herd to Christ, herd, H-E-R-D, a pattern of experienced leadership. I've seen a considerable amount of news and signals Singles, preachers, new and, singles, new and preachers. singles, preachers, elders, and deacons, theologically prepared, but they have failed when it comes regarding practical problems because of the lack of maturity. Would you ordain new and single leaders for your church? What's the practical problems that would be confined in this situation? Thank you, Davi. You know, if we look at the qualification for elders and deacons, as Paul lays them out, in First Timothy chapter 3, uh, he's very clear about the first part of your question. We do not put new converts into positions of leadership uh, in terms of being an office bearer in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul is uh, very clear uh, with respect to that in First Timothy 3.6, not a new convert so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. With respect to deacons, he says that they um, um, need to be men who have been tested uh, by uh, the church. And so uh, I think that a man needs to be um, showing 
a mature uh, Christian life. That's why these qualifications, really only one of them is has to do with gifts, and that's apt to teach. The others, for the most part, deal with character, proven character. An office bearer must be above reproach within the church, but also within the community. That takes time for a man to build that kind of reputation. I was just talking to someone earlier today that mentioned uh, this trend right now of putting, or I guess it was last night, uh, churches are going after sharp 30-year-olds with almost no experience because they want that young, handsome person up there. And these are big churches that are doing this. And it's simply uh, marketing, and it's to the detriment of the church. In fact, our churches should do a great deal more. You mentioned theologically prepared, and that's often the case, but ministers, ruling elders, and deacons should all have their gifts tested uh, before they uh, are put into office, and they should manifest a composite character, not a sinlessness, but a marked maturity in all the areas that the apostle mentions. Now, with respect to single, that's not a requirement. The apostle Paul evidently was single. Uh, Christ says that, that the single person uh, can be a single for the sake of the kingdom. And Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 7, for example, that the single person is able to devote himself much more to the cause of Christ. So when Paul says that the uh, elder must be the husband of one wife, he's not saying he has to be married, but he cannot be a polygamist. If he says he must manage his household well, again, he's not requiring marriage, but uh, if he is married, that's how he manifests his leadership skills. If he doesn't have a family, there needs to be other ways the church then will seek to uh, evaluate his, uh, his leadership skills, and the church can do that. So uh, marriage status itself is not uh, a requirement for church office. There are some people, I think of a man like David Livingston. We mm-hmm. often praise him for the great sacrifice. We forget about the sacrifice of his family. I think when a man goes is called by God as best he knows to a destitute area of the world where one could not take a family, that, that is a calling for a single man. Uh, not for a man to be gone from his family for years on end because he's called to be uh, a missionary. So definitely new Christians, even if they're theologically astute and are well-read, should not be put into office. Single Christians must be tested with respect to gifts and theology. If they have that maturity and leadership ability, then their singleness should not be a hindrance. The practical problems are obvious. You get untested men in office. Paul himself says that they're going to be uh, all the more tempted to pride and to conceit, fall into the snares of the devil. They're not going to be experimental in their approach to the Christian faith. It's all going to be head knowledge, not worked out in life. Mm. They'll be going to build a lot of lopsided Christians um, they can do great damage to the church. Yes, yeah, very good question, and one that is um, extremely important, I think, for the church, as Dr. Pope has already 
said. Now, David from Florida writes in. Now, he's got a four-part question. I think what we'll do, Dr. Pipe, is I'll just read you the first one. We'll deal with that, and then we'll move to the second one that he has. So he's got like four questions built into his one big question. (laughs) But anyway, you'll understand what I'm doing. You, the listener, anyway, will understand what I'm doing as we go. So the first thing that David writes in and is interested in finding out about is, what is the Reformed confessional view of God's impassibility? How should we defend the doctrine of impassibility, especially as it seems to be coming less popular in modern evangelicalism? Well, David, three of your four questions could each have a program devoted to them, and um, <laughs> we might even suggest that we, that we do that. Uh, it was just recently in May that I was made aware that this uh, was a controversy and it's a controversy in the Association of Reformed Baptist Churches in particular, but I gather from some things I've read, it's even more widespread. The, um, I believe that the Bible teaches the doctrine of impassibility, and I commend to our uh, listeners a very good article by Paul Helm in his, on his blog called Helm's Deep. H-E-L-M-S-D-E-E-P. And I'm basically going to follow his outline in answering this question. We have to first define what we mean by impassibility. There are three English words that are very closely related in spelling. There is uh, the word uh, impassivity, and that's the person that is... uh, disconnected, impassive, not involved. Mm. Obviously, that's not God. And then there's the word impassibility, and that is the trees across the road and you can't uh, pass it. And um, obviously, again, uh, we're not saying that uh, there's anything beyond the reach of the all-powerful God. He is omnipotent and he does all his holy will. So the term of theologians have used for the doctrine is impassibility, I-M-P-A-S-S-I-B-I-L-I-T-Y. Now, on the one hand, we must assert that this doctrine does not say that God does not have something in him that is analogous to our human emotions. We are made in the image of God, and because we're made in the image of God, um, and not all emotions in men are wrong. Our Savior had an emotional life, and I would recommend to you the article by B.B. Warfield, The Emotional Life of Christ, and his book on the person and work of Christ. So uh, God has something in him that's akin to emotions. And so God does have love, hate, kindness, tenderness, um, all the various um, positive emotions that we would have as well. But here's where the difference is. Our emotions are always reactive. They are often out of balance, and they often are selfishly motivated. For example, Mr. Helms gives the illustration. You might read that there are thousands of children dying from hunger in Darfur, and that really would not raise much emotion in you. But if you had a couple of them on the doorstep of your house, mm. you'd respond very differently. And so your motivation 
is going to be uh, more self-centered. God is not uh, selfish. He is self-centered in the, in the sense that he rightly desires and seeks his own glory. Hmm. So, God has emotions, but we also must assert that God is immutable and that God is simple. And by that we mean that he's, he's not different attributes at different times. He is his attributes, and there's no division between them. So this immutable God who is simple being, who is uh, his, his love is holy and justice and just and and righteous his wrath is holy and good and kind and so uh, we have to realize then that he's an immutable uh, being who is simple in that he is his attributes so what the bible does is use what we would call an anthropopathism. Perhaps you've heard of um, anthropomorphisms, where God, the Bible talks about God's hands and eyes and such as that. We know he doesn't have a body like ours, but there's something in God that is analogous to what we do, or God does things analogous to what we do with our body parts. And so the anthropopathisms is the fact that there is in God something analogous to our emotions. But in God, um, they're a unit, and they're the act of his will, and um, they um, are unified. I said they're a unit. Now, the people that are against the doctrine of impassibility are wanting to emphasize the suffering God, mm. and that God is responding with brokenness and uh, tenderness and suffering to the plight of man. That's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is perfectly good. He's the fullness of all things. So he's the fullness of goodness and love and compassion. Um, but uh, he does not respond differently um, to us in different situations. So when the Bible talks about God being angry with someone or repenting of creating someone, we need to take the analogy of the earth and the sun. If, in fact, the earth um, revolves around the sun, um, it's the sun that is stationary, and it is the position of the earth through rotation and revolution that would create the difference of seasons and day and night and things like that. And so God is the simple, immutable being. As we change uh, with respect to him, the Bible will teach us that we come under different manifestations of the one God. And it uses these emotional descriptions to uh, teach us that very important truth. If we do away with the doctrine of impassibility, we are really... Uh, attacking the immutability of God, and I think it is a very dangerous uh, thing uh, to do. Well, the question is asked, what about the suffering of Christ? And we have to affirm that Christ is the God-man and mm -hmm. the hypostatic union, one person with two natures, and he had a physical nature. He had a body and a soul. And uh, yes, 
in his human nature, he suffered, and thus the person suffered mm. in the same way that the person died. And Paul will actually say that God purchased the church with his blood That's because of the unity of the person. But we don't think when Christ was hungry or tired that that was teaching us that there's something in God that needs to be fed or must have rest. And so the the suffering and the emotional life of the Lord Jesus Christ in his human nature is not a pattern to help us understand um, these things in God, but to show us how these things ought to be manifested in the one who is conformed to the image of God. Yep, great question. And um, I think what we'll do, we'll, we'll actually put some of these topics that Dr. Piper, mentioned, Dr. Piper mentioned that could be broadcast in and of themselves, we'll put those kind of in a hopper, as it were, um, and perhaps um, come back and address these in a fuller way in a future broadcast, because I think these are important questions, and maybe we should probably think about doing that. Now, the second question that David asks about is, it comes out of 1 Peter 3.21. Uh, he asks, what does it mean... <laughs> in 1 Peter 3.21, when it says that baptism saves us. Okay, Peter, this is in the context where uh, Peter has written about Noah and the eight being saved in the ark, and that is a type of baptism that now saves you. But notice there's a parenthesis, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God. Now, I don't take the removal of dirt from the flesh to be a bath. The word dirt here can mean defilement, and flesh, of course, can mean our sinful nature. I think Peter's saying that baptism saves. Now, it doesn't save by removing the defilement of sinful nature. No, it saves by an appeal to God for a good conscience. Baptism is the work of God in us that will strengthen our faith, and we can then appeal to God for a confidence that he has washed away our sins. So baptism is necessary because God has commanded it. It should be part of our message. Uh, It is important for assurance, as we see here, for salvation. It's important for sanctification. It's not necessary for the remission of sins or for justification. Hmm. And, And what you get in people, Federal Vision people, is they they simply throw this word out, baptism saves, baptism saves. But our task is to interpret the Bible, not simply to parrot words that could be taken in any number of, of odd ways. Right, and, and, and as I read that, and I just think, I mean, I'm a simpleton, I guess, and I just think, well, if that's what it meant, then it, we're going to upset large segments of Scripture that are very clear that works, efforts of man in that sense cannot save us. And so, um, anyway, now, the next question, again, this is one of those questions that a whole podcast could probably be done. Well, it should um, be, and we can get Gabe Fleur to do it. Yeah, So, but here's the question. What are the unique features of Gordon Clark's teachings as opposed to Van Til? That's Cornelius yeah. Van Til. Yes, and I'm only going to touch on this partly in my <laughs> ignorance. Uh, I did consult with um, Gabe Fleur, one of our graduates who just finished his uh, Ph.D. PhD work at Westminster in Apologetics, and we'll get him on the program soon to um, discuss this question for a whole a whole program. But he helps often when I have a apologetics question. I, I go to him or Dr. Curto, but uh, 
He, uh, he points out in the first place, and I did not realize this, that Gordon Clark did not have a theology degree. He never studied theology. He was a, a philosopher, whereas Van Til uh, had degrees in theology as well as in uh, philosophy. And uh, Gabe says this point is the, probably the reason for some of the theological errors mm -hmm. that he thinks are in Gordon Clark. He says that Clark held to an anti-biblical and anti-confessional view of persons. He claimed, based on an improper exegesis of Proverbs 23.7, that the definition of a person is the propositions that he thinks. You know, I think, therefore I am. Idealism. Uh, and so uh, that's a person. But Think about the absurdity of this. How could a set of propositions be crucified? Hmm. If we um, um, just take that one, one issue, we, we realize that Christ was a person, but Christ was more uh, than just um, a set of ideas. But because of this uh, view of persons, this led to errors in his Trinitarian theology uh, that at best in his constructions he had a social Trinitarianism, that uh, he would have to affirm an impersonal substance as something that the persons of the Trinity share in common. So it's not that, uh, that God is three persons and that the substance of God is, in fact, uh, a, a personal being, but that uh, there's some impersonal deity that the three persons share in common. That would not be the orthodox doctrine of the, uh, the Trinity. But if this is the case, you have to affirm that we are one with God ontologically, because if there's a substance that the three share in, and this is a substance we're made in God's image that we would share in, and thus you've got a problem with incipient pantheism. Not that Clark went the direction of this, but these are the problems that lie there. Well, this gets to the real controversy between uh, the two of them, and that is because of his Trinitarian uh, theology, um, now, Clark did deny what we'd call uh, univocity, a, a, a sameness of our being and God's being. He would assert the creator-creature distinction, but he wants to claim that there is a sameness in our knowledge and God's knowledge mm. so that we know as God knows, God knows as we know. And in doing so, he then denies analogical knowledge so that uh, we would say that we can think God's thoughts after him by analogy, but we cannot think as God thinks. And so those are some of the uh, incipient problems. Um, and there's a dissertation by Dr. James Anderson who teaches at RTS Charlotte under the title The Paradox in Christian Theology. And he has a very good discussion then of Clarkianism and the whole idea of paradox 
as it's understood in theology today. So that's a WIPF and Stock publication, WIPF and Stock, Paradox in Christian Theology, Dr. James Anderson. We had Dr. Anderson at our conference this past March, and he's a very uh, clear and useful mm -hmm. uh, lecturer in the whole area of apologetics. Yep. It's not the best answer, uh, and I would apologize. It's way out of, beyond my pay grade. But we will have uh, uh, soon-to-be Dr. Fleur on here, Lord willing, to uh, go into this uh, more fully. And I would encourage uh, you uh, to write a follow-up question where I've been more obscure, uh, David, write, and we'll make sure that uh, Gabe uh, can fill in the blanks. Yeah, so Jared Ingram. <laughs> So everybody knows he is uh, helps me out with this program, so you need to line him up for me so we can do this. I mean, this is one of those discussions that comes up time and time again in reform circles. Um, I have a number of books on my bookshelf from uh, Clark, and I have a number of books from Van Til, and, and I'm taught Van Tillian presuppositional apologetics here at the seminary. So it would be good to have a full-length podcast on this particular subject because I think it would help clear up some of the confusion especially in my own head so let's get that done as soon as we can now the fourth question um, comes uh, again a controversial issue uh, on the Norman Shepherd uh, matter that occurred during the 70s and 80s at um, at Westminster in Philadelphia what was Shepherd trying to say and was he outside of the confession at that time a little background for the for our hearers uh, the controversy that was going on there had to do with the formulation with respect to justification, particularly the imputation of Christ's righteousness and the instrument of justification. The confession and catechism position is, is that the sole alone instrument by which one receives justification is faith, not faith and repentance. Repentance is a part of faith in we must turn from our sins with a hatred, but it's faith that re receives the gift of gracious justification. Mm. And then when one believes in Christ, God does two things immediately. Pardons all sins, past, present, and future, and legally constitutes that person as righteous in his sight on the basis of the perfect obedience of the Lord Jesus Christ imputed uh, to the one who is believing, so that he is constituted righteous before God. Now, that's the classic doctrine of justification by faith alone. It's the doctrine taught in the Westminster Standards. In the early days of the controversy, and I actually was up there, I'd left the pastorate after seven years, and I was in Philadelphia doing my doctoral studies right at the height of this thing. And <clears throat> Shepard's written statements often were ambiguous and difficult for people really to see where the error was. Um, I was filling the pulpit at an OPC church up there, and I decided I would preach on Matthew 5, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, um, and I inherit the kingdom of heaven. And I dealt with the imputed righteousness of justification, but the necessity then for the justified person to grow in holiness. That's the other controversy today is that um, justification is so emphasized that sanctification is then neglected. Uh, well, I preached that sermon emphasizing both those truths, and one of 
Professor Shepard's keenest critics came out and thanked me for the sermon. And then Professor Shepard came out and thanked me for the sermon. (laughs) So I figured, well, I have got the key here. So what I said to Professor Shepard was, on the basis of what I said, what would you say? Now, these were his words. Why distinguish? Why distinguish between imputed and inherent righteousness? Now, that's the clearest thing he said in the time that I was there, and he said it to me privately. But that tilted me clearly into the um, opposition of Shepherd. Later on, in a book, Backbone of the Bible, he wrote two chapters. And in one of them, he shows that faith is not the sole instrument of receiving justification, and the other, he denies the imputation of Christ's righteousness to the believers. So those are his two serious problems. I believe um, that they uh, are clearly outside the confession. Yep, and, and I think there's another book. I mean, is it true, Dr. Piper, that this this Norman Shepherd position it was really kind of laid the foundation for what we then birthed what we have as, as federal vision? It's one of the planks. Uh, Shepard has been very much in line with the uh, Federal Vision Men Day with him, N.T. Wright, and then some of the uh, nuances covenantally, although Shepard was also into the objective objectivity of the covenant, the way the Federal Vision people And, and he presented that in, what, A Call of Grace, I think is the, the book that he's yeah. set, he laid that groundwork there. Right. So those are some titles that you can – I wouldn't recommend those unless a person had discerning mind to read. Um, but those are some of the books that lay these things out, um, and um, they're to be seriously considered as you read them. Now, David's for, a bit greedy here. He asked four questions, and he, he lists four books. No, these are – just pick one. Okay. They're the top four books. <laughs> I, it, just, it, just to defend David a little bit, I crossed that out on my sheet so that I wouldn't read it on the air, but – Anyway, I was overruled. <laughs> but anyway, um, but we'll teasing him. Yes, we'll get those out to you. Um, just in the, as, in the order of your request, if we have it, David. Yes, and notice he he put you on number two. What, what's what's up with but that? He put a periodically ahead of me. <laughs> yeah, well, that's the thorn. That's the Thornwell one. Yeah. So you should be happy about I that. I am. Regardless. Okay. So. Good questions anyway, and, and ones that I think, uh, as we've already said, we're going to deal with, I think, in a fuller way uh, in the future, so stay tuned for that. Now, Arthur writes in from Middletown, Pennsylvania, um, and I think he's written before, but that's okay. He writes, we see online the, the name New Calvinist. I'm really glad he wrote this in, because I've been wondering about this myself. What is so new, is the question. How does it differ from the old Calvinism? Theologically and pastorally, how do we warn people about its danger without disrupting the unity of the church? Well, Pastor Arthur, thank you uh, very much. I I agree that this is a very important uh, question. A few years ago, some of you might remember the book, uh, Young, Reformed, and Restless. I actually read that book and gave it away to (laughs) new donors from the seminary because it was very encouraging. There was a whole group of 20- and 30-year-olds that were beginning to discover Reformed soteriology and, interestingly, complementarianism, which is the biblical position on male-female relationships. But outside of that, they had lots of gaps. The churches they were in often had uh, 
very uh, innovative type uh, worship practices, uh, bad ecclesiology. We think of the Acts 29 people and and others like that. They'd have these big conferences. And so um, that's kind of the foundation for the new Calvinism. I actually, the reason I got on Facebook, and maybe some of you new Calvinists are listening to us live or listen to these broadcasts periodically, I actually got on Facebook so I could uh, connect um, as much as God would will it with the young folks that are in this movement because I appreciate the zeal uh, for reform soteriology, but there's so much more to biblical Christianity that we would like to expose you to. But what's happened is that it's just kind of gotten stuck in a rut. Mm-hmm. And so what you've got is bad ecclesiology. That's one of the big problems. It's You know, so often everything comes back to one's doctrine of the church. Bad doctrine of the church, weak views of the Lord's Day, weak views of, of worship, um, lots of gaps then in in their thinking. So the new Calvinists are the really excited people, people really excited about reforms of theology, but there's a great deal of mess that is there connected with this, and there's not been as much growth out of it um, as uh, I would hope to see. In fact, you look at the Acts 29 and Mark Driscoll, I mean, these they're getting crazier and crazier. Um, so... Um, now, there's a pro piece that was recently written in the Banner Truth magazine by uh, Ian Murray, and there's been an answer to that by Tom Chantry, who is uh, Walt Chantry's son, and it was a very balanced piece that Tom wrote. I was hoping I had forgotten to uh, find the uh, link on that before we went on the air, but uh, it is... Uh, written deliberately to uh, interact with what uh, uh, Murray wrote in the Banner of Truth and is quite useful. So I think if you, um, oh, here I have it. It is uh, chantrynotes.wordpress.com. Chantrynotes.wordpress, one word, dot com forward slash 2014, forward slash 07, forward slash 03. New Calvinism Conclusions. So it's very well done. It was sent to me by one of our board members. And so, again, there's a resource for you to look at Ian Murray's article, but then come and look at uh, Tom's assessment. Now, I think that, uh, I mean, I want to continue to, to be friends and, and uh, as much as possible interact and uh, have fellowship with and minister to these people. But it's not, it's not the old Calvinism in fresh clothing. Mm-hmm. You see, it's not. It's not Orthodox Calvinism. It's not ex- the warm experimental Calvinism of the Westminster Confession of Faith. And so now... I think we warn people in the way I've just done it. I want to be friends. I want to have fellowship. But I want them to see that there's much more to uh, reform Christianity than where they are and try to expose them uh, to that. But also, when you start reading some of the aberrations that are coming out of 
of these churches. Uh, we all know the big problems that were in the the charismatic reform group with uh, name starts with an M. All the sexual um, things that were going on there, and then the things with Mark Driscoll. There's real dangers out there as well, um, and so we have to humbly and kindly warn people, though, that they are their dangers. Yeah, very good question. And just to follow up um, with the links, I, one of the things that I'm, I, I want to do more of for the podcast that I've not done in the past and I think would be helpful, especially in the faith and practice segments, is Dr. Pipe will often reference something, a book or an article or a link. And what I'm trying to do, and one of my goals for the program is to add those in like a show notes section on the website so that if you're listening in your car, obviously you can't jot this down or you're on the go in some capacity, um, you can go to the website and then you'll have the links, you'll have the resources there at your fingertips. And um, so that's one thing I'm going to, I'm working towards. Um, It's a time thing to be perfectly honest and just being able to put all that together. But that's a goal I have going forward. So um, just, Note that I'm going to try to include these links that he just mentioned um, in there on the website at confessingourhope.com. So just make note of that if you're driving right now and you can't can't do anything about it. Um, just go to the website when you get home or wherever, and um, it should be there uh, when this is released. So just keep that in mind. Now, Micah writes in from Hawaii. I think this is the first time, first listener from Hawaii that's written in, which is great. I mean, we're getting people from Brazil, from England. Uh, we've had people write in from all what over the north? all over the world. Yeah, even 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 in the uh, well, we won't even go there above the Mason Dixon line. Even from Canada, which is more north than New York, just keep that in mind. But anyway, first writer from Hawaii. So, thank you for listening uh, to the program, and I'm I'm very encouraged to see people listening all over the planet. Frankly, but um, it's it's really just an encouragement um, to us here at the seminary that that people are interested in these things and. But uh, Micah writes in, and he says, My question is whether or not a Reformed believer can benefit from anything at all from the theology of the medieval theologians such as Thomas Aquinas and Duns Scotus. Or is it the case that the medieval period is dark is a dark chapter in the history of the Church where unbiblical doctrines were propounded and enforced as dogma to be believed by the faithful? Thank you for taking the time to look at my question and for your services to the church at large. I agree with him. I think we should just do away with, with all the medieval teaching and no more medieval church history. I make that motion. <laughs> uh, we just I, I, I make that as a joke because we teach medieval church history here at the seminary. Uh, we, they teach, I learn. And um, But anyway, do you, is there a benefit, Dr. Piper? Well, there really is. You know, if you read... Um, any of the great Reformed theologians, they're going to quote Thomas Aquinas. Mm-hmm. And Calvin and Luther, throughout scholasticism, roughly, because of certain approaches and the combination with philosophy and Scripture. But Aquinas in particular uh, needs to be read because uh, he is a key link and a good development of a lot of doctrines. He... We had one of our THM students do a, a work on Aquinas and election, and it is a, a very useful work that I'm sure you could write to seminary and, uh, and get a copy of it. He's continuing now to work on Aquinas. Uh, there are many great lights when you go back uh, 
from Gottschalk, who was a double predestinarian, to uh, Anselm, uh, Bernard of Clairvaux, many of you know the hymn, Jesus, Thou Joy of Loving Hearts. Uh, and Aquinas is probably the greatest intellectual figure from that whole era, and there is much profit in reading a man like Aquinas. R.C. Sproul, in a book that was done a few years ago by Soledad Gloria, puts Aquinas as one of the Christian uh, intellectual figures in the history of the church and writes in that book uh, to defend the evangelical faith of Aquinas. Now, I mean, even Augustine had very bad blind spots on uh, baptism and the sacraments. Aquinas did. He did too much compromise with philosophy, but there are useful things in Aquinas. Also, and I've not consulted them, but I have heard from a number of sources that his commentaries are quite good, mm. that he was really an excellent uh, commentator on Scripture. Scotus, the whole direction that he takes uh, theology is probably less useful. But, uh, yeah, it's worth reading these men both in terms of to see where they went astray, but also just for positive uh, developments. Yeah, good good question. Um, and you see the development of doctrine, too, through these periods. Even, I think it was Dr. Wilborn that mentioned one time about the early church guys. He, he said it was remarkable how much they got right, given the resources they didn't have available, that we, like we have now, all the writings and all the history. You know, so, I don't think we should talk about the Middle Ages as the Dark Ages. The, the, there was a very bad decline in the second half of the Middle Ages, but... Uh, there was much that was done in terms of Augustinianism, hmm. the whole rise of the university system. I mean, the Renaissance basically is the Middle Ages coming to maturity. The Renaissance laid the foundation, of course, for the Reformation. So I don't even like the idea of Dark Ages. Uh, there is a, yes, there was terrible problems, but you also had bright chapters like the Waldensians in Italy and France and and uh, Wycliffe and Huss and even Savonarola seems to be more evangelical than uh, some moderns would think he was. Hmm. Well said and very good point as well. And our final question for today, um, and it's great because of the timing, um, but Jesse writes in from Miami, Florida. Um, what are some? What What are some of the biblical and theological reasons for not? practicing weekly communion in any Presbyterian congregation? There are none. <laughs> when I read this question, when I, for you know, just full disclosure, when I saw the question come in, I thought, hmm, <laughs> this is going to be the shortest answer in the history but, of faith and practice. <laughs> but on the one hand, I do not think that the Bible requires weekly communion. It was uh, obviously practiced particularly in the, uh, in the early church. And so there's clear biblical warrant for one that wants to do it. But I've actually changed my position. Uh, I have advocated for years frequent communion. And when I started a church in California, we actually had communion twice a month. Uh, and what I would say to people who consulted me on this issue was, if a congregation 
is mature enough that they're willing to invest the time to have proper preaching, proper worship, and a proper communion service, um, then I think it's a good thing to do. Hmm. Uh, but so often, either people rush to the communion service or they want to shorten the sermon, they want to shorten the worship, or all three. That's why it takes a certain level of, of maturity. Uh, so that was my position until I had the privilege for about 10 or 11 months being interim at a church in Georgia, interim pastor, the practice weekly communion. And it, this congregation had been well-trained. The, um, there was not pressure to shorten the sermon when we had communion. The worship is one of the best liturgies in the PCA. And the communion service also is real communion. There's time for reflection, instruction at the table and in communing with Christ in the act. I benefited greatly spiritually from weekly communion, although I was just there two, two weeks a month, and actually have profited much more from all the other communions I participated in during and since then. So where my position has changed is, yes, it takes a mature congregation, but now it would be my goal to see a congregation move to weekly communion. You know, we don't, you would know, probably know it was Calvin's goal, but it was also the goal of many of the Puritans. They were Anglicans, they had weekly communion. John Owen writes a very fine defense for uh, weekly communion. Now, what I recommend uh, is to have the first Sunday morning of the month and then rest of the services it be in the evening. Uh, that way you've got a mature congregation. You are able in the evening uh, to have a little more abbreviated service. If you have in the morning reading of the law and corporate confession of sin, I don't normally do that at night. You have a creed then coming to the table. That fits really well to do it that way. So, But I am now encouraging my students to uh, make that a pastoral goal and encourage people to move that direction but train a congregation first yep great question and i, I got a follow-up question this is um one i think we even raised in class perhaps because mm -hmm. um, we did talk about this oh, yeah, it's commonplace. yeah what do you do dr piper how would you advise a, maybe a member um who would like to see their session move in this way and understand when i say the member's doing that he's, he's being respectful when he's addressing the session all that stuff notwithstanding okay but when a pastor or an elder says, well, we don't want the Lord's Supper to become too just normal, you know, kind of normalize it. It's just, it just becomes common, and it loses its flair, as it were. Well, there's a lot of things that we do every service of a worship. We preach, we pray, we sing, we recite the creed, we read the law. Uh, it's a heart problem. I hope that all of you have the, a regular practice of private prayer, daily prayer, and Bible reading. Mm. And every one of us that does that wrestles with it becoming commonplace. I use the Bible reading calendar and must constantly work against the temptation not to reach my goals so I can get through to the next day, but to commune with God in the process. So it's a hard issue. And we just have to guard ourselves that we cherish— you know, um, all that God gives us. 
mm-hmm. and not take it for granted. I just, uh, in reviewing the larger catechism on the third commandment, again reminded, you know, we all have these problems of taking lightly God's name and God's name or his word works, word, word, attributes, ordinances, and works. And we all have that temptation, and so whatever it tops its head up, we have to uh, try to deal with it. Well, very good counsel. Now, we do have a few minutes, Dr. Piper, to maybe tell the listeners about our two summer classes this semester, if you'd like to do that, and then then we'll uh, wrap up for this segment, at least segment eight. But before he does that, I just want to remind everybody, if you have questions for Dr. Piper on this particular segment of the Confessing Our Hope podcast, go to the confessingourhope.com website, and you can and have that five minutes of fame that they say everybody gets in life. And, <laughs> and we will deal with your question on the air. Um, simply fill out the form and send it in to us, and, um, and we, will, we will address it. We may not address it immediately, but we eventually get to all of them. So, um, and you'll get a book on top of it, so there's a benefit as well to getting your question answered. So use that form to do that. Now, this summer. Also, let us know... What you think about the live broadcast? Is it something that – because we're still going to archive this. It's going to be available in the right. normal way as right. well. And we have played with the idea then of, as we do the broadcast, of actually getting Twitter questions to be coming in. So um, we want to keep serving you. Now, we've got two great courses. It's not too late to sign up for either one of them. <clears throat> Next week – is uh, Dr. Wilborn's course on the history of Presbyterian theology, Southern Presbyterian theology. It's going to include a historic tour with lectures of Columbia and Charleston, South Carolina. So it's a great combo of vacation and instruction, and we still have slots available there. Week after that, the first full week of August, is our summer institute that we do each year for leaders in the church. I'm very excited about this year's topic. We've not had the response to it I thought we would get. Uh, And so we've extended the early bird price for registration. But this is on uh, the preaching in Acts, a model for motivational preaching. Mm. Our preaching today, uh, even when we've got really good exegetes, so often is lacking in how to motivate. And here's biblical principles being laid out by Ray Heifel on that. So... Uh, it's not too late to register for that course. For ministers, we give continuing education credits uh, for that course, uh, which are things that ministers ought to be doing. Most other professionals uh, have to do those types of things. Um, but ruling elders, uh, men preparing for the ministry or thinking about ministry, we encourage all of you to come and join us for this time. Outstanding. The dates for the Southern Presbyterian class are July 28th to August 1st. And then August fourth to the eleventh for the uh, the preaching class, and um, I, I do know uh, I happen to know that the Southern Presbyterian class is is rather large at this point. Um, I think we're in our high twenties, I believe, if last time I checked. So, but that doesn't mean you can't come. Register and come. I've been on the tour. I've said this before. It is worth it. It is worth it. It is the, it's such an encouraging time. Uh, I, I can't even begin. There, there's not enough words. It's a fantastic opportunity. Dr. Wilborn, uh, excellent instructor, especially when you're sitting in the places that he's talking about. It's just really remarkable 
to experience. So there's those two opportunities for you. If you want more information, all of this is on the Greenville Seminary website at gpts.edu. So as usual, um, if you want to know more about what's coming up on the, the program, confessingourhope.com. I'm not exactly sure what's co- coming up. I, we just laid out a few ideas for um, my helper <laughs> to start working on, so hopefully we'll see those in the very near future. Um, but if you want to know more about the program, it's simply confessingourhope.com. More information about the seminary, as usual, is at gpts.edu. Edu. If you want to write me with comments, criticisms, whatever it may be, you can write me at confessingourhope at gpts.edu. And as usual, I want to thank Dr. Piper for taking the time uh, to sit down and do this a uh, little different today. We had live uh, live streaming, and we've had a number of people listening. I can actually see the numbers as it's happening. So um, it's really good to utilize this technology, redeem it for a good cause and for the building of Christ's kingdom. And so, Dr. Pippa, thank you once again for for being on. You're welcome. So until next time, when we have, uh, I don't know, I don't know who it's going to be, but we'll find out eventually. We do thank you for listening to this particular edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. And God bless.